The sermon text for today is from Acts chapter 9, verse 19b through 31. Acts 9, 19b through 31. For some days he, Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know, the history of Christianity is, is filled with remarkable and, and unlikely and, and even what some might call unbelievable conversions. John Newton was an, uh, a self-professed atheist, agnostic, a self-professed infidel, a wretched man. He was a slave trader. He, he abused slaves on his, on his ship. He was a hard man. He was a wicked man. He hated God and the things of God. And if anyone had come to John Newton talking about the things of God, immediately he would have rebuked them. And what he believed would have been irrefutable, philosophical, sound, rational reasoning. And therefore, when John Newton was saved, it was hard to believe. Those who knew him before he was saved heard of his conversion and said, no way, not him. Not that wicked man. It is John Newton who has given us perhaps the most beloved hymn in the history of the church. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch he calls himself. Like me. Think of somebody like Rosaria uh, Butterfield. She was a professor at a, a college up in the New England area. A lesbian who owned two homes with her partner and lived with her, her partner. Was an, was an advocate for lesbian and gay issues. An ardent, an ardent enemy of Christianity and all things Bible. And yet, she tells of her story 
in a book that was recently written in which she named it The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. How Jesus was introduced to her, grasped her heart, wrenched her from the grips of her lesbianism, brought her into the kingdom of God, where she now proclaims the graces and the mercies of Christ. The most unlikely conversions, beloved. This is what God does. And yet of all the unlikely and almost unbelievable conversions, I would argue that none was more unlikely and more unbelievable than was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. As we have seen before, we've been studying the book of Acts. The church never had a more ambitious or determined enemy than Saul. Chapter 8 and verse 3 tells us that he was ravaging the church. That he was seeking to destroy the church, to eliminate the church from the face of the earth and to eliminate the testimony of Jesus Christ. And how he was doing this, the Bible says that he was going from house to house and dragging off men and women and putting them in jail simply because they named the name of Jesus. He was determined to stamp out, to to wipe out the disciples of, of Jesus and make the name of Jesus a byword in history. It was Abraham Lincoln who says the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. The best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. Beloved, this is what God does. This is what God does in conversion. When he saves, he he takes those who were at enmity with him. He takes those who were his enemies. They were enemies of heaven and all things righteous, and he makes them his friends. He takes those who are by nature children of wrath and children of the devil, full of ungodly lust and desires, and changes them, beloved, into children of God, members of his household and heirs of glory. He takes that which was ungodly and unholy and declares it now to be holy and blameless and right with him. And he does this unprompted. He does this unmoved. He does this unaxed. Unaxed. Paul didn't ask Jesus to save him. You didn't ask Jesus to save you. I know you think you did. At some point along the line, you think you asked Jesus into your heart. But, beloved, here is the biblical truth. God determined to save you before you ever knew there was a God unprompted by you, unmoved by you, unaxed by you. 
God sent Jesus to the cross to die for your sin before you ever realized what sin was. Unmoved, unprompted, unasked. That's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For God demonstrates, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the glory of it all. When it comes to salvation, we must always remember what the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. This is what makes salvation so remarkable. This is what makes redemption and conversion so unforgettable. Salvation of Saul was just that. It's remarkable. It was unforgettable. And so too was was what happened after he was saved. Saul's conversion impacted everything. It was a game changer. It changed him. It changed all those around him. It changed the context in which he lived. It changed everything. Everything, And that's what we'll see this morning. We will see the impact of the conversion of Saul. Just in this little brief snippet of Scripture. And it's, it's just, it is impactful. Makes a difference all around. I'm going to point out three things for you this morning from this Scripture concerning the impact of the wonderful salvation that God wrought in the life of Saul is real simple, nothing hidden, nothing hard here. It's come right from the text, and therefore we should move pretty quickly. As a result of Saul's conversion, we see three things happening here, three movements. First one, Saul was preaching. Saul started preaching. Secondly, the disciples were disbelieving. And lastly, Barnabas was encouraging. This is it's, it's real simple, straightforward. And you already see it, I know. But Saul was preaching, wasn't he? And all those who were in Damascus, you know, that's where Paul had went. Remember, as you heard in the previous Sunday, that's where Saul had, had went. Saul of Tarsus had went to Damascus to persecute the church. And on his way to Damascus, he was remarkably and unforgettably converted. Jesus saved him. Jesus changed him. Jesus called him and brought him into the fold of God. And all those who were in Damascus now were amazed, amazed that this Saul of Tarsus, this great enemy and persecutor of the church was now 
proclaiming Christ. As Paul himself said in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 23, he who once persecuted Christ now proclaimed the Christ he once persecuted. And with the same passion and with the same determination that he went after Christ, now he is going for Christ. That same passion that he had to get rid of Jesus, now he is using and going in proclamation of Jesus. Notice what it says about his preaching there. It said he preached immediately. See that in verse 20? Saul preached, and when did he start preaching? He started preaching immediately. Started preaching immediately. Immediately, the Bible says, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. How long did it take him to start preaching Jesus? Not long. Why? Because Paul understood, I mean, Saul understood that there was nothing else to preach. They don't start preaching Jesus so soon. What else am I supposed to preach? Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. He starts quickly with Jesus. But not just, and notice what he does, beloved, not just Jesus as miracle worker. He's not proclaiming Jesus as miracle worker. He's not proclaiming Jesus as healer. He is proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, the uniqueness of Jesus, the necessity of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus. And this would be Saul's message or or, or Paul's method throughout his ministry. Start with Jesus, continue with Jesus, and end with Jesus. Somebody has recently wrote that the epistles that we have in our Bibles really are just many sermons from from Paul. Essentially written sermons to those churches. And if that is the case, beloved, notice as you read those, because you probably skip over the first couple of verses, but the thing that happens in the first verses of all Paul's epistles is that he begins with Jesus. He starts with Jesus. Always, always, always starts with Jesus. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He starts with Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Philippians, and we go on and on and on. Philippians 1 and 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are gathered in Philippi. Why? Because first and foremost, it's about Christ. Begins all, all of his inspired writings the same way. Why, beloved? Because inspired preaching is Christ preaching. It's what it is. Preached about Jesus. Not his own experience, but Jesus. 
not what you can have if you sow a seed into his ministry, but Jesus did that immediately. Not only did it immediately, the Bible says that he preached it unashamedly, didn't he? They were all amazed at Saul's preaching. Wasn't this the one who had come to Damascus to recruit in the synagogue? Men to go and to raid the Christians' homes? And now he was in the synagogue recruiting men to be Christians. And he was unashamed by that. And those who were gathered there find themselves not able to add this up. This was inexplicable. This was amazing. This was unbelievable. And yet Saul didn't care because Saul was on that 116. Come on, everybody. Let me tell you what it means. It's on that 116. You remember Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 where Paul would write that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to who? To the Jew first. And so where did Saul go? To the synagogue. Because he was not ashamed of the gospel and understanding that his gospel has come now to the Jews. First Paul says, okay, I'm going to the synagogue. They asked John Dillinger, the famous bank robber, why does he rob banks? And John Dillinger said, I rob banks because that's where the money is. Why are you going to the synagogue, Paul? Well, because that's where the Jews are. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Goes to the synagogues because that's where his people were. And isn't that that what we do? Those who have truly been saved, those who have truly been changed and come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, what is the first thing you want to do? You want to go find your family. You want to find those close to you. Want to go find those who don't know the Lord, who are in your immediate realm of influence, and you want to tell them about Jesus. If your experience was anything like mine, if your experience was anything like Saul's, if your experience was anything like Jesus, the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 11 that Jesus came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own people not only didn't receive him, but his own people tried to kill him. So it was with Saul. He came unto his own. And what happened? His own did not receive him. In fact, they tried to kill him. They wanted to kill him. Why? Why, beloved? They wanted to kill Saul because he was a threat. He was a serious threat. He was a bigger threat than James and John. He was a bigger threat than Peter and Andrew. Paul's life was a threat because his life 
was irrefutable. One of the most powerful and indeed irrefutable arguments and apologies for the truth of Christianity and the resurrection of Christ is the the life of Saul or the Apostle Paul. We do understand this, that, that one might understand why Peter and James and John and Andrew would follow Christ. Because they had been with him. They had walked with him. They had ate with him. They had sat under his teaching. They had seen the miracles. They had spent all those years with him and and, and grew to love him and adore him. And therefore, when he died, you can understand them standing up for their Savior. But Saul? Saul had nothing to gain in this world by following Jesus. In fact, beloved, he had everything to lose. By standing up in the synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had nothing in this world to gain but everything to lose. In fact, That's what Jesus promised him, didn't he? He had told him earlier on. Saul is going to suffer for my name. He had everything to lose by following Jesus. Jesus didn't promise him a large bank account. Jesus didn't promise him a house on a hill. Jesus didn't promise him health and wealth, life of luxury and ease. But in Acts chapter 9 and verse 16, Jesus promised him suffering. Promised him trial. Promised him hardship. Promised him pain. It was Matthew Henry who said, Saul was no sooner a Christian than he was a preacher and no sooner a preacher than he was a sufferer. That's what Christ promised him, beloved. And here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. This is why they had to try to get rid of Saul. Because Saul embraced that. The sacrifice of life and limb, the sacrifice of culture and kin, the sacrifice of all the things that he had built his life around, of all the reputations that he had, the sacrifice of all of that, Saul embraced it. He embraced the suffering. Five times, he says in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, he was flogged, three times beaten, Three times shipwrecked, he was stoned. He experienced poverty and lack, ridicule, loneliness, hunger, thirst, sleepless nights, anxieties. What? Ask yourself the question, what would make this man turn so dramatically and start to preach the Christ he had hated so much? And embrace all of that. There's only one answer. 
because God was real. Jesus was real. And when he stood up in the synagogues, they had no answer for him because Saul was telling them, I've seen him and I know he's real. And he changes everything. Beloved, I cannot tell, the songwriter says, just how you felt when Jesus washed your sins away. But since that day, Ever since that hour, God has been real for I can feel his holy power. Yes, God is real. And he's real in my soul. Yes, God is real for he has washed and made me whole. And his love for me is like pure gold. Yes, God is real for I can feel him in my soul. That's what Saul. Be saying, and they had no answer, and they had to try to kill him because that's what happens, beloved. When Christ comes, he changes you, he changes you, he changes everything. Saul was changed. You know, forgive me, but I am often bewildered by people who claim to have come into a knowledge and relationship and experience with Christ and nothing changes. Nothing changes. Men who claim to love the Lord and they still don't love their wives. Women who claim to come into a relationship with Christ and they still don't submit to their husbands. People still sleeping around and shacking up. And they claim to know Jesus. I'm sorry. Those who come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ is evidenced through repentance of sin. And seeking to live lives that are full of repentance. It changes you. Paul, Saul, was changed. And everybody knew it. Do they know that about me? Has Christ changed you? Are you different? Have you been changed? Because when Christ comes, he changes you. The knowledge and experience of Christ makes things different. And the Christians in Damascus believed it. They believed it. They, they saw it. They looked at him and said, oh, yeah, this is not the same guy. And when those who tried to kill him, when they came to get him, the Christians in Damascus helped him to escape, and they sent him on to Jerusalem. And while the Christians in Damascus believed him, 
the disciples in Jerusalem were another story. For those disciples were not so easily to believe. These disciples were disbelieving. And you see that in our text, verse 26. After he leaves Damascus, he escapes those in Damascus. When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. The Jews ran him out of Damascus. The Christians in Jerusalem didn't want him. Why? Because they didn't believe Saul. Saul had did his worst persecution in Jerusalem. You do understand. He had a reputation in Jerusalem amongst the Christians. He had did his worst persecution in Jerusalem, and they had not forgotten. Many of them had lost close family members and friends because of Saul. Many of them had had suffered at the hands of Saul. Saul was public enemy number one in the churches in Jerusalem. Therefore, on the one hand, you could probably understand why they were so disbelieving. They had reason, you could say. Who is this guy? Is this some ploy to get inside the church so that now he can wreak havoc from inside? Is this simply Saul coming to us as a wolf in sheep's clothing only once he is inside and discovers where all the Christians are, therefore being able to wreak havoc and ravage and destroy the church in Jerusalem? After all, didn't Jesus say in Luke chapter 6 and verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit fruit. We've seen his fruit. That's a bad tree. Or James does not. James remind us also that the same mouth should not be bringing both blessing and cursing. That from the same fountain can come fresh water and salt water. What is this? Admittedly, beloved, it's hard to believe the testimony of some people because of the life that they lived before. No one, no one believed John Newton when he first got saved. No way. No way. I know people. I know people in my life and there are people very close to me in my family that if you told me today that they came to a knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ, I would look at you as if you were crazy. You must have lost your mind. I would not believe you. Lee, I would be a cynic, skeptical. No way. There are just some people. who just have no business talking about they say. Do you know what the problem with that is, beloved? The problem is that that the disciples in Jerusalem, it's not that they didn't believe Saul. That's one thing. The real problem is that they didn't believe God. 
That's the problem. It's one thing not to believe Saul. It's another thing not to believe God. Because when it boils down, it is this. Did they believe God could or would save someone like Saul? Let's assume for a moment. Let's assume for the moment that the disciples and the apostles were obedient. And they were doing what Jesus had commanded them to do. And he had commanded them in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 to be praying for their enemies. Pray for your enemies. Now, what are you to be praying for your enemies? Are you to be praying that they would have their heads cut off? Are you to be praying that somehow, some way they would fall out of a tall building and break their necks? Is that what you are to be praying for your enemies? Of course not. The thing that Christians are to be praying for their enemies is that their eyes would be open to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and that they would see the error of their ways and come to repentance and know the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ. That's what Christians pray for. At least that's what we should be praying for our enemies. And if they are being faithful, If they are doing what Jesus had taught them to do, then they should have been in Jerusalem. And let's give our brothers the benefit of the doubt that this is what they were doing. They were praying for their enemies that God would save Saul. And when the word comes that Saul is saved, why then are they so surprised? That God would answer their prayers. Why? No, no, no. Let's, let's not talk about them. Let's talk about us. Why then? Why then are we so surprised that God would answer our prayers? The same reason they were surprised is because we don't believe He will. Ah. Oh. We believe he could, but we don't believe he would. We believe he could answer our prayers, but we don't believe he would answer our prayers. Beloved, if we are honest, the last thing we want for our enemies is for God to save them. Let's be honest. The last thing you want for your enemy is for God to save them. The last thing you want for somebody who has wronged you, for somebody who has abused you and did you wrong, is for them to walk into this church and to say they are saved and sit next to you and worship in the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. the very last thing you want, at least not before they got theirs. Give them something, Lord. Give them some hardship first. Let them know what they did to me. Remind them of the pain and the hurt that I've experienced. And once they've been knocked flat down, yeah, then you can save them. Thankfully, 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 beloved, God is not like us. God delights more in saving his enemies than he does in punishing them. 
you don't believe that, you ought to, beloved, because if you are saved this morning, that is good news. That is good news for you if you are in Christ this morning, that God delighted more in saving you than giving to you what your sins deserve. If God can be merciful to you then, why shouldn't he, or better yet, why couldn't he be merciful to others, even those who hurt you? Well, thankfully, thankfully, beloved, not all God's people are skeptical. Not all God's people are like me, or most of you. God does have some people who are believing. Not all God's people are cynical. Not all God's people are skeptical. Thankfully, there was someone in Jerusalem who not only believed God, but he believed himself. And his name was Barnabas. While the disciples were disbelieving, Barnabas was encouraging. Notice what it says in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, here's the picture. When Saul gets to Jerusalem, he is homeless. He has nobody. His brothers and sisters, according to the flesh, the Jews, they don't want him. They want to kill him. His brothers and sisters, according to the spirit, Christians, don't want him because they're scared of him. They're afraid of him, and they think that he want to kill them. He is homeless. He is a man without a country. He is a man without a home. Can you imagine the distress? Can you imagine what Saul is experiencing here? His people in the flesh don't want him. His people in the spirit don't want him. Where do you go? Where do you go? But then along comes Barnabas. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for the day of adversity. You want to know what, Paul, what Saul thought of Barnabas? He was a brother that was born for a day of adversity. Barnabas, what a name. What a friend. His name was actually Joseph, you remember, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. That was his real name. That was his given name. His name was Joseph. But his nickname, according to the apostles, was Barnabas. Barnabas meaning son of encouragement. Because at that time, Barnabas had so freely and willingly gave of his resources and his money to the furthering of the work of the local church. And they called him, not Joseph anymore, but they called him Barnabas, son of encouragement. The gospel, beloved, the gospel did that. 
That's what the gospel does. You see, it changed Barnabas. You see that? It caused him to give. And he gave. He gave of his property. He gave. He gave of his resources. He gave of his money. Again, this is the difference that the gospel makes in our lives. It causes us to humble ourselves and to give of ourselves in service to the church and the things of God. This is what Barnabas did. But this time, he not only gave of his money, but this time, he gave of himself. Last time, he was willing to put his property on the line. But this time, he was willing to put his reputation, his life on the line for a brother. And notice what Barnabas does quickly, two things. Barnabas brought comfort and Barnabas brought assurance. And why is that important? That is important, beloved, because that is the work of Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And here is evidence of a man who was filled with the Spirit. He brought comfort. He brought assurance. Notice how he brought comfort. Because you can only imagine how distressing Saul, how distressed Saul was and how a distressing situation this was. He was a man without a home. And notice what the Bible says. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas took him. Barnabas brought him. And what a comfort that must have been to Saul. For Saul didn't have the ability to speak up for himself. They wouldn't listen. He couldn't advocate for himself. They wouldn't listen. Barnabas comes and he comes as an advocate. He comes as an help. He comes as a counselor. That's what the Bible says the Holy Spirit does. Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 16 that the Holy Spirit that he would send, whom he would send, would be our advocate, would be our counselor, would be our comforter. And what does Holy Spirit do in our lives, in our moments of need and distressing? The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 that the Holy Spirit intercedes and speaks for us when we cannot speak up for ourselves. That's what Holy Spirit does in your life. Has it a comfort that you have in knowing that the Holy Spirit is your advocate so that when you don't know how to go to God, Holy Spirit goes anyway. When you don't know how to pray, Holy Spirit prays and intercedes for you anyway. When Saul couldn't speak up for himself, Barnabas comforts him, advocates for him, speaks on his behalf. But not only does he offer comfort, Barnabas also offers assurance. He offers assurance. For he not only comforted Saul, but he assured 
the apostles that Saul's testimony and what they and what they had heard about Saul was true. And the skepticism of the apostles fell apart in the face of Barnabas. That's all it took. That's all it took. All it took was for Barnabas to come speak up on Saul's behalf. And the disciples and the apostles were no longer skeptical. They were assured. They were assured. Because the reputation of Barnabas was impeccable. And when he assured the apostles, that was enough for them. And so notice what it says in verse 28. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of Jesus Christ. This freed Saul up to do the work that God had called him to do. This assured the apostles that not only was Saul called by Christ, but he was called into the proclamation of the gospel. But it gave also Saul the assurance that God was with him and that what God had told him was true. This too, beloved, is the blessed work of Holy Spirit and the church in our lives. He assures us that the work of Christ in our lives is real. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, the Bible reminds us that the Spirit of God comes and he testifies and he bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. That's where our assurance comes from. Holy Spirit in our lives assuring us that the work of Christ is real. Does that in the community of faith in the church as we gather together, as we sing the songs, as we pray the prayers, as we hear the word proclaimed, as we partake of the Holy Sacrament, it is the Holy Spirit assuring us that we belong to God. Reminding you and me that the work of God in our lives is real. It's real. And once that assurance was given to the apostles and to Saul, Saul went back to preaching. Preaching what? Preaching Christ. Preaching Christ. Because the more you're assured you are, the more you realize that there is nothing else to preach. Blessed assurance, that's what he's saying. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his love. This, this, this is, Paul is going, I said, Paul, we do. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Jesus Christ is real all the day long. Is that your story? Ah, oh, beloved, I pray it is. I pray the story of every person that's gathered here this morning 
It must be your story. If you are going to say that you really, truly know him, I pray it is.